It's often said that you don't know where you're going until you know where you're coming from. That's not always a, a one-to-one correlation or always true, but it, it does prove true in many instances that moving forward oftentimes involves some reflecting back. See what the past has to tell us about the future. And knowing your family history, for instance, about sickness or illness, diseases, well, it helps you to think about what might come to plague your own body. Or knowing some of the, the even the dark, hard things in you, the past of your family helps you uh, to know why things are the way they are, why this family member is distant, or this side of the family has never been heard from. I mean, even trying to think about, do I have more family out there, has led many people to spend hundreds of dollars, sometimes thousands of dollars on Ancestry.com or some of those other subscriptions. There is much value often in looking back to know why things are the way they are now and how we should move forward. Well, thankfully, the Bible helps us with that as well. In the Bible, and specifically in the book of Genesis that we've been in over the last few weeks, we have a free subscription to ancient ancestry. Right, we get the Bible's own version of Ancestry.com helping us to see our origins, helping us to know where we come from, why that's important, and helping us to understand why the world we live in now is the way it is. And so we think it's much value. And not just thinking about and preaching about current events, uh, we need to view current events in the lens of the biblical storyline. And so let me invite you even now to turn with me to the book of Genesis as we hear from God's word and what God did long ago that still has reverberating effects for today. Genesis chapter 2, and this morning we're going to look at verses 4 through 17 together. If you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, you can find it on page 2. Uh, if you're in the balcony, there hopefully would be a Bible on the pew somewhere. If you need a Bible of your own that you can easily read and understand, please take that Bible with you home. We'd love for you to have that gift. Uh, yeah, if someone helps anybody, who need, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Somebody will get you one. Great, great. Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. We read, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, it was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, bdellium and Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. 
The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We read God's word. It's helpful to, before we start to think about what it means and what it means for us, to just simply look at the text and make careful observations. A good practice of being a good Bible reader is to make good, careful observations of the text. And so a few observations here from Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. First, notice how the author, Moses, repeats some of the same things that he already talked about in Genesis chapter 1, such as the creation of man. That's not a waste of time. That's not Moses trying to fill up some kind of divine word count for an essay. No, it's one of the key features of Hebrew literature. Hebrew literature is recursive in nature. Hebrew authors, the, the, the Old Testament is originally written in Hebrew, uh, often develop an idea from one perspective and then come back around uh, maybe a chapter later, maybe a few chapters later and develop that same topic from a different angle. Right. That's how they move from one idea, one thought to the other. It's not kind of linear. This plus this plus this It's this. And then it's the same thing again and again, as as one Old Testament scholar puts it, it's like God's word in surround sound. Right. There's the left and the right speaker. They're presenting the same sound, but in different ways, different angles. That's what you often see in Hebrew literature. Well, second, notice how this passage starts off in verse four. Look there with me. It says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And that's significant because it serves as a kind of title that Moses uses throughout this book. It's the kind of framework that he uses to, to move the storyline along and to present different phases in this one connected story. And so look at your Bibles. You see that you find that same phrase 10 times in the book of Genesis. So let's flip there with me briefly. Look at Genesis chapter two, verse four. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Flip your Bibles to Genesis chapter five, verse one. We read, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Look one chapter over at Genesis chapter six, verse nine. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. I'll turn a few pages over to Genesis chapter 10, verse one. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, sons born to them after the flood. Turn one chapter over to Genesis chapter 11, verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. Going on to talk about Shem's lineage. Turn over or just look down a few verses to Genesis chapter 11, verse 27. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Flip a few pages to Genesis chapter 25, verse 12. These are the generations of Ishmael. 
Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. Uh, Turn, look down of just a few verses to verse 19 of Genesis chapter 25. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac and goes on to talk about Isaac's children. Turn a few pages to Genesis chapter 36, verse 1. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. It goes on to talk about Esau's lineage. And then turn one chapter, look one chapter over to Genesis chapter 37, verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. It talks about Jacob's descendants, mainly Joseph. I bring that up, a little bit of Bible flipping, to show you the structure of the Bible. These aren't just random stories that Moses is like, oh, let me just think about something to put down. Neither are these fables. These are real events that Moses specifically puts together in a format to move the storyline along. Every time we see that formula, these are the generations of, it means something like this is what happened to the thing named. This is what became of the thing that is named. And so if you flip back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, we read that these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. What it means is that this is what became of the heavens and the earth that God created back in Genesis chapter 1. Lastly, by way of observation, notice how often God's name shows up here. You see it in verse 4 and in verse 5 and in verse 7 and in verse 8 and in verse 9 and in verse 15 and in verse 16. And we talked about this last week, kids and teens and even adults, right? One of the helpful ways to see God's big ideas in the Bible is whenever there's a repeated phrase or repeated word to just circle that thing uh, to try to highlight its importance. The biblical authors use repetition to make ideas prominent. Here, often throughout Genesis chapter 2, the author wants us to know that this book is about God. Right. All over and over, we see how God is mentioned and look at how God specifically is named. He's the Lord God. I mentioned that because that's a change from what we saw in chapter one. If you flip back to chapter one and you were practicing to kind of circle the repeated words exercise, you'd have a bunch of bubbles around all these instances. And God said and God said and God said and God saw and God saw and God saw. Only if you look in chapter one, when we see God mentioned, he's named God. We translated Elohim. And yet in chapter two, he's not simply God, but the Lord God, Uh, the covenant name for God's name that he used with his people. The Lord is what's used. All right. When you see those kind of things, why is it God in chapter one and the Lord God in chapter two? We need to ask, why is that the case? Right. What is going on here? Why the switch from God in chapter one to the Lord God in chapter two? Well, some modern literary critics say it's very simply because two different authors wrote Genesis one and two. Right. And some later editor just put those two things together so that we can read them now. Right. Some guy wrote Genesis one. Another guy wrote Genesis two. But, you know, that kind of thinking puts outside pressure upon the Bible. To be good students of the Bible, we need to read the Bible not through modern Western lenses, but through ancient Near Eastern lenses. All right. We need to read the Bible on its own terms. 
as it was written. We need to understand Moses' original context. He's writing to the people of Israel right before they're about to enter into the promised land. And if you understand that, I think you see what he's doing. He's reminding the people that the great creator God of chapter 1 is the tender covenant God of Genesis 2. The God who is the transcendent creator over and above his creation is also the imminent God of Genesis 2 who is near to and intimately cares for his creation. There's power and there's comfort in this God. There's precious care with him and a precious relationship he's calling us to enjoy with him. Covenant God is the creator God. He's big and he's for you. God is reminding his people both then and now. And so with those observations in mind, I want us to think about what I think is the main idea of this passage, the main idea of the sermon. God's plan is to dwell with his people in his place in perfect union. The main idea of Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17, God's plan is to dwell with his people in his place in perfect union. As we consider that main idea, we'll hang our thoughts on three elements I think Moses is calling us to marvel at in this text. Number one, God's special people. We said in verses four through seven. Number two, God's special place. We see that in verses eight through 14. And number three, God's special people's special purpose. We see that in verses 15 through 17. So first, God's special people. Secondly, God's special place. And third, God's special people's special purpose. First, God's special people. Again, verse four just kind of sets the stage of development for what happened to and in the world that God created. And then verse five provides something of the prelude to God's crown creation, mankind. We read, when there was no bush of the field in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, because the Lord had not caused it to rain or bring man on the ground. I need to ask, well, what land is, is verse 5 talking about? I don't think it's talking about the entire earth. I think it's describing the uninhabitable land that will later become the Garden of Eden. If you remember back in chapter 1, in verses 11 and 12, we read that on the third day, God caused the earth to bring forth vegetation and plants yielding seed of their own kind and fruit trees bearing fruits. That was before the creation of man. But here in verse 5, it seems that the land was bare because it was waiting for the creation of man to tend to it. I don't think this is talking about the entire earth, but the land that is kind of the pre-Garden of Eden specific piece of land that is awaiting man's arrival. With verse 7 then, rolling out the red carpet and announcing the grand arrival of God's grand creation. In verse 7, we read, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Striking here is the difference between God's creation of man and his creation of all his other created beings. We mentioned this in chapter 1. With every other one of his creations, God simply spoke them into existence. And God said, and it was so. But with man, he, he slowed down. In chapter 1, we, we, we saw that how God didn't first just speak to have man created. He first spoke to himself. He took counsel within the divine Godhead and said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. 
with Genesis 1:27, then telling us, so God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. But Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, didn't tell us exactly how God made man. Well, Genesis 2, verse 7 is here to provide more details. It kind of double clicks on Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, and gives us a kind of drop down that expands out into more information about the creation of humanity. God didn't just simply speak the first man into existence. He did something more personal, more intimate. God formed the man from the dust of the ground. God is presented in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 as a kind of master sculptor. Uh, taking the dust of the ground and shaping it, as it were, by his hands for his satisfaction. He's a a craftsman, uh, taking time with his craft and taking delight in molding the first man. There's intentionality and wonder that this idea of God forming man is meant to convey. I mean, that's how David in Psalm chapter 139 thinks of this concept. He says in Psalm 139, verses 13 to 15, You formed my inward parts. You you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven from the depths of the earth. A man is not the byproduct of some kind of Random chemical explosion. He's not the outcome of years and ages of evolutionary uh, fulfillment of a species. Man is the special craftsmanship of God, the craftsman, God, the creator, God, the master sculptor. As later biblical authors will speak about it. God is the potter and we are the clay, which endows a special status to us that he formed us but also that he is over us and can do what he wants with what he's formed. As the Apostle Paul later says in in Romans chapter 9, who are you to question God, O man? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? God forms man. And he forms man from the dust of the ground, which is why something like racism is so incredibly ridiculous. To think that one race of people, one ethnicity of people is more precious than another ethnicity, ethnicity of people simply because of the shade of your skin. Just know where we all come from. From the same source, yes, Adam, but even more basic than Adam, from the dirt that Adam came from. How are we going to tell another man, another woman, that because of their skin color, they're less than us or that we're better than them? Friends, dirt is dirt. What makes you special is not that you came from some special amount of dirt. What makes you and I special is not anything unique about us or unique about our own little group. What makes each and every one of us special is that God specially made each and every one of us in his image to reflect him and to represent his glory. Ethnic pride then has no place among us. 
Pride in general has no place among us. It's incredibly sinful to exalt ourselves. And you know where pride often shows up? You might think, I ain't really prideful. I don't boast about myself. You might not, you know, talk about I'm the greatest, this or that. But you know where pride often shows up? In self-sufficiency. The kind of attitude and actions that shout, I don't need God. Even if your lips never part to say those exact words. I wonder where that attitude shows up in your life. Maybe it's at work where you feel like you have to work endless hours, grind the clock, white knuckle bear it. You need to crush it. You need to do everything to provide for yourself, never resting and never relying on God. We talked about some of that from the first three verses of Genesis chapter 2. That kind of prideful self-sufficiency can also show up in prayerlessness. When we go through our days without asking the Lord for help, without leaning on the everlasting arms of the Lord for help, without talking to the Lord, we're basically saying, I can do this on my own, God. Thank you very much. That kind of prideful Self-sufficient attitude can also show up in just thoughtlessness. How many of us go throughout our days without even giving a single thought about God? You don't care about what God thinks about sexual ethics. You don't think about what God thinks about what you say out of your mouth, what you type into your phone, what you look at on the screen. It's all about me who cares about God. But Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 is out to reorient our minds. We are totally dependent on God. He not only formed us, he's the very one who breathed life into our nostrils. That's true not simply of the first creation of man. That's true this morning. You and I only have breath because God breathes breath into us. God gives you life. Your life is dependent upon him. God formed the first man and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living soul. Right? That's what that word means, not just a living being, a living soul. We are embodied souls, endowed with reason and conscience and made responsible to our creator. That should make us stop acting like we're self-sufficient. We are not. Yes, we're especially formed by God, but don't forget you are formed by God. All of us need the reminder we are from him, not from ourselves. It's as if God is the divine parent, constantly reminding us what our earthly parents used to often tell us as teenagers before we left the house. Don't forget where you came from. Don't forget who you belong to. God gave you life. You know, that's true, not just with physical life, but also with spiritual life. Because of sin, we find ourselves something like the first half of verse 7. With physical bodies, but with no real life yet. In fact, the Bible says that, yes, you can have a physical body and physical features and physical functions and yet be spiritually dead because of our sins against God. But just as in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, God breathes life, spiritual life into his people by his word. It's the picture we get in Ezekiel chapter 37 of the valley of dry bones when God says, speak to the bones and I will put my breath into them and they will take on a flesh and they will live. 
It's the picture we get in John chapter 3 when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, right? And, and Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again by the Spirit of God. Or another way to translate Spirit of God is by the breath of God. It's why we read in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable or useful for teaching and for rebuke and for reproof and correction and righteousness. The man or woman of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God is still breathing into his people by his spirit through his word and reviving dead souls. My friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're not sure where you are going, what your future lies, let me tell you, you are dead and you need spiritual life to be with the Lord. And let me tell you that God gives spiritual life through his word, by his spirit. And so you need to be incredibly attentive and respond appropriately to God's word this morning. Turn from your sins and turn to the Lord who speaks to you through his word. God formed and gave life to his special people, to the first man, Adam, whose name just really means out of the ground, and to all of us. He took great care in making us, and he means for us, made in his image, to be with him. Which brings us to our second point, number two, God's special place. God's special place. Verse 8 tells us that after God makes man, he makes a place for him. Look there with me at Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. We read, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Where verse 7 pictures God as a sculptor forming man. Here, verse 8 pictures God as something of a horticulturist, uh, making himself a garden and making it yield fruit. Again, it just shows us how God is intimately involved in his creation. Is intimately involved in all the details. Genesis 2 has no idea of God being some kind of divine watchmaker who just made the world and left it on its own to run itself. No, God not only made the world, God is in the world making all his purposes come true. God is involved in every single aspect of the world. The man he just formed is not just to live on the earth as a whole, but in this specific place. This garden of Eden that God plants, and so God then transports man out of the land, as it were, as a whole, and into his presence, into the garden. Notice how verses 9 through 15 then just go in great detail to talk about the garden of Eden. Verse 9 tells us that out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil Trees that we read about later in verse 17 and in in the next chapter of Genesis chapter 3. And then look at verses 10 through 14. They describe this river flowing out of Eden that that breaks into four rivers, the the Pishon and the Gihon and the Tigris and the Euphrates. As you read through Genesis chapter uh, chapter 2 verses 9 through 15, though, they don't seem all that special. I mean, I've, I've talked about the second section of this passage as being God's special place, but this looks like a rather normal garden. It's got trees, and it's got plants, and it's got food, and it's got streams of water, right? It's rather strange that the author then spends all this time talking about these details of this garden that are pretty normal of what you'd find in a garden. 
So why does this author, why does Moses spend so much time talking about all these details? Well, it's because this is no ordinary garden. This is the garden of God, as Ezekiel chapter 28 describes Eden. It's special, not simply because God put his special people, his special person, Adam, there, but because God himself would dwell with Adam in this special place. This garden was something of God's garden sanctuary. It was something of God's garden temple, the first place where God would dwell with his people. Now, how do I get that? I mean, you don't see the word sanctuary or temple anywhere in this text. Well, that's what all the details are there for. These details highlight not only things found in the Garden of Eden, but things that you later see in the tabernacle and subsequently the temple of God. Take, for example, what you normally find in a garden. All right, trees and flowers and plants and food. Things we read about in verse 9 that God made to spring up every tree that was pleasant to the sight. Probably had flowers on it. It was was pleasing to look at. And not only that, it was good for food. There was fruit and crops and vegetables that filled the garden. That's what you would expect to find in a garden. But you know where you wouldn't expect to find those things? In a church building. In a temple, in a sanctuary. All right, if you, you walked in and you saw like plants all over the floor, you're like, what is going on here? Right? And yet, strangely, these are the kind of things we see when God gives his people instructions for the construction and the design of the tabernacle and the temple. If you got your Bibles open, flip to me, flip with me to, to 1 Kings chapter 6. 1 Kings chapter 6. If you're using one of the Bibles under the pews, you can find it on page. 284 and 285. And we read in 1 Kings chapter 6 of Solomon's construction of the temple. And look down at, at, at 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 18. We read there, 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 18, that the, the cedar within the, the house, which is the house of God, the temple, was, was carved in the form of gourds or fruits and open flowers. I drop down to verse 29 of 1 Kings chapter 6. We read, around all the walls of the house, Solomon carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. Verse 32, he, Solomon, covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. A chapter later in 1 Kings chapter 7, drop down to verse 18 as we continue to talk about the, the temple. We read, likewise, he made pomegranates in two rows around the one latticework to cover the capital that was on the top of the pillar. And he did the same with the other capital. Verse 20 of 1 Kings chapter 7, the capitals were on the two pillars and also above the rounded projection, which was beside this latticework. There were 200 pomegranates in two rows all around and so with the other capital. When you entered into the temple, And you looked around at the walls. It was covered with carvings of trees and flowers and fruits and plants. And you're wondering to yourself, what are all these things doing in the temple? Well, it's meant to reflect the Garden of Eden, the first temple of God. But let's keep on looking at the details of Genesis chapter 2. You can make your way back to Genesis chapter 2 as we keep making the point. We also read... In Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, that the tree of life 
was in the midst or in the middle of the garden. Well, well, likewise, what do you see later in the middle of the tabernacle, in the holy place? A replica of the tree of life. That's what the golden lampstand is, the menorah, right? It's a tree, a flowering tree with seven branches. Seven, the number of completion, also the number of days that God completed his work of creating the heavens and the earth. That lampstand, which was in the middle of the tabernacle, was to give light to the priests in the temple. And as we so often see in the Bible, light is often associated with life that God gives to his people. We read the same thing about the tree of life in the passage that Stephanie read for us earlier in Revelation chapter 22. Uh, the tree of life is there in the new heavens and the new earth, the, the new and eternal dwelling place of God. Or oh, think about the, the strange inclusion in Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 through 14 of this river flowing out of Eden. Now, why is that significant? Well, because a river is often associated with the presence of God. Now, psalm chapter 46, a popular psalm. Starts off with those favorite words of ours. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in time of trouble. But if we keep on reading in chapter 46, we get to verse 4 of Psalm chapter 46 and we read, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy habitation or the holy living place of the Most High. Listen. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Or listen to Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 1, where the prophet Ezekiel recounts a vision from God. He says in Ezekiel 47, verse 1, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. And behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. It says Eden is in the east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Or again, as Stephanie read for us in Revelation chapter 22, verse 1, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And notice in Genesis chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, not only the mention of the rivers, but this mention of gold and delium and onyx, precious stones. Right? Well, why does he include that? Well, because almost everything in the tabernacle and in the temple was overlaid with gold. Revelation chapter 21, verse, uh, chapters 21 and 22 tell us about the new Jerusalem. The heavenly city of God where God will dwell with his people. And it tells us that the entire city... It's pure gold, like clear glass. And that the foundations of the walls of the city, we read in Revelation 21, verses 19 through 20, are adorned with every kind of jewel, including onyx. After which John tells us in Revelation 21, and I saw no temple in the city, for his temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. There was no need of a building of a structure for the temple is where the Lord dwells with his people. And surrounding that place were the same things you saw in the Garden of Eden. 
It's all part of the picture that Moses is painting of why the Garden of Eden is so special. It's where the God of the universe was dwelling with his people. God planted a garden and God took Adam and God planted Adam in that garden to be with him, to dwell with him. And God is no distant deity. He's not disconnected from us. God's goal is to be with us. He is God with, with us. God's plan is to be with his people, not just in the spiritual sense. Now we often pray, Lord, be with me today. It's a good prayer to pray. God's goal is better than that. God's goal is for us to be with him physically, right? To be present with us. That's why Paul can, can, can talk about, right? My desire is to depart and be with Christ. Well, that is far better than anything else. To be with the Lord. Sadly, sin has separated us from God. We'll read about that in Genesis chapter 3. We've been cast out of God's presence. We don't have that proximity to God that we were created to have with God. And so our hearts, even if we don't know what they're doing, they are longing to be with the Lord again. And we keep trying to fill that distance, that gap with other things, but only God himself will fill that gap. Only God himself will cross that bridge. Only God himself uh, can cause that gulf, that divide to be lessened. And God himself has done that. God himself has come to us in his son, Jesus Christ, who is Emmanuel, God with us, who, who dwelt or tabernacled with us, who lived among us, who lived a perfect life, for us and died a sacrificial death in our place so that we who turn from our sins might be with him forever. Indeed, after Jesus died and rose again, you know what he went to do? What he promised his disciples he was going to do in John chapter 14, verse 13, that I will go to prepare a place for you. And I will come again and bring you to myself so that where I am, you will be also. God's plan is to be with his people in his place forever. We see that God made this special place. He's inviting Adam into it. Don't read Genesis 2 ever again. It's simply some kind of weird garden. It's where God was and where God is calling us into. For some of you this morning, that rejoices your heart that you will be with God. For some of you this morning, you are yawning at that. And I wonder why. You are created to be with God. So if you are yawning at being with him, understand that something is malfunctioning, not in God, but in you. His plan is the same. Why is your plan so different from his? God's special place we see in Genesis chapter 3. Third, we see in this passage, lastly, God's special people's special purpose. After this kind of digression into all the details about Eden, showing why Eden is such a special place, verse 15 picks up where verse 8 left off with God putting Adam in the garden. And he gives us his purpose for doing so. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 
Now, we mentioned this last week. Work is good, right? Pre-sin, pre-fall, we see that there is work. God worked in creating the world. And, and now we read he puts Adam in the garden to work. Work is a good calling from a good God. God made us to work. Now, that's not all that God made us for or even ultimately what God made us for. God made us to, to glorify and to worship him. But one huge way we do that is through our work, right? It's by our work. And friends, that's not just paid work. And so if you're here this morning and you are a student, right, your main work that God is calling you to do to reflect him is to work hard at being a student, right? When you slack off from being a student, you not just only do a disservice to yourself or to your par parents, you are saying, God, I'm not doing what you've called me to do. I'm not working as you've called me to do. Or kids, even with your chores, that work may or may not be paid. But even if it's not, it's still good work that God has created for you in this season. Right? Work is something that God gives. God gives Adam work not as a punishment, but as a provision. It's good to work. What's that mean here, though, for Adam to work? Well, it at least means that Adam was to cultivate the grounds. That Adam was to be the kind of first gardener in God's garden. He was to bring some stability and some order and some fruitfulness to it. Uh, Adam was to, to till gar the Garden of Eden and to make it fruitful and to expand the Garden of Eden's borders until the whole earth looked like Eden. But it's so much more that Moses means for us to understand here. The word pair he uses for work and keep, the God called Adam to work and keep. The, the word pair he uses there are the Hebrew words avav and shamar. Avav means to serve. Shamar means to guard. When those two words are used together in the Pentateuch, in the other books that the same Moses who wrote Genesis wrote, those two words are used often in terms of service by the Levite priest in the tabernacle. Listen to, for example, Numbers chapter 36, verses 6 and 7, which Moses also wrote. He says, bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron, the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him, Shamar. And over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister or avav work at the tabernacle. So why does Moses use the same terms of Adam's work in the garden as he uses for the priest work in the tabernacle? Well, for one, it points to the garden being a sanctuary, a temple once again. But it also presents Adam's job, not simply as tilling the ground as a gardener, but as serving as a priest in the temple. And it introduces Adam, right, not simply as a king, but as, as a king priest. Remember back in chapter one, we say that God in chapter one, verse 28, gave Adam and Eve rule over all creation as a kind of vice regent under God, right? Adam was to reflect God's kingship to God's creation. Adam was a king, and here we read Adam is also a priest. He's a king priest. 
Friends, that's the, the, the picture of Genesis 1 and 2 is not mainly agricultural, but theological. It shows us that the first man, Adam, is, is something of an archetype, a prototype, a covenant head representing all humanity as a king priest. Right? As such, he's meant to rule over all God's creation as a king and to mediate God's blessing to his creation as a priest. Adam was to serve faithfully to his God as God's crown creation. And part of his service was to guard the temple. It was to guard the garden from anything impure. Adam was to guard the, the garden from anything dangerous that would threaten the fellowship and the sweet relationship that he had with his God. And the most dangerous thing that would be ruinous to that relationship would be disregarding and disobeying God's word. And so notice how God commands Adam in verses 16 and 17. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. We see here that God rules by his word. We are to obey him and worship him, which is symbolic of a covenant relationship, which is supposed to be marked by faithfulness and loyal love. Though God formed us and gave us incredible rule, we still need to listen to God. Man is never over God. God gives us commands, but they are for our good. So, so notice here that God's commands are not first restrictive, but permissive. Not first no, but yes. Not you may not, but you may. Verse 16, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. God loves to give. He richly provides. God is not some killjoy constantly playing keep away. He wants us to enjoy him and to richly enjoy all his good gifts. God is constantly saying, yes, 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 yes. He's a good and a giving God. I wonder if that's convicting for you as a parent. My wife and, and I sometimes reflect on, on this at points that, that when our kids ask us something, that are not inherently harmful or dangerous, how quickly our first response is, no. Uh, I wonder if that's your default. For no good reason as a parent. I wonder if that's your default for no good reason as a Christian. Your supposed devotion to God is summed up mainly in all that you abstain from. All that you say no to and you secretly judge other Christians for all that they say yes to, even if they aren't inherently sinful. Oh, they send yes to drinking wine. They send yes to eating pork. They go on a vacation. They spend the money. They're taking time off. Oh, what kind of God are we saying we pursue? What kind of God are we portraying? When our heart's first instinct is the no, 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 no. The God of the Bible says yes to a lot of things. The God of the Bible says you may surely, my sons and daughters, yes, enjoy all the rich good gifts that I've created for you to enjoy. There's so much joy and freedom found in living under God's rule. 
That's the lie of the serpent that tells you that living under God's rule is first restrictive. Oh, all he's keeping me from. No, first living under God's rule is freeing. All that he says yes to. All that your soul finds satisfaction in without guilt. Without condemnation. But there are some restrictions. There are some prohibitions, namely here in verse 7, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat of it, or you will surely die. What made this one tree so dangerous and awful? We, we don't know for sure. We'll consider that more in chapter 3. Right? We're not told for sure. But the point was that God said, don't eat from it. And that was enough. We didn't need a rationale for why not? What's so bad about it? God said it and that's it. Friends, if you don't learn how to live with that, you will have a hard time living. If you don't know how to learn how to live with that, you will not live. You will surely die. And so just your own heart. If that's your heart's first instinct with people lesser than God, with every other authority figure in your life. If every time your parent or your boss tells you to do something, you're like, for why? How you think you ain't gonna be able to turn that switch off when it comes to God? You're always gonna be bucking up against him. Rebellion shows itself in so many small steps. We don't die from the fatal blow to the head. We die from a million small cuts. A million small compromises. A million small no to God's no. We need to trust that God's no is not for our harm, but for our good. And notice here what happens. Disobey what God says no to. There is death. That's the consequence of all sin, of all disobedience to God. Death, eternal death, eternal agony in an eternal hell that is eternally reserved for those who say no to the Lord's commands. Adam put into God's garden was to serve God faithfully and to expand that garden's borders. He was to guard the garden from all evil. He was to present to all the world's inhabitants the goodness of God. And the richness and the sweetness of living in God's presence and living under God's rule. And yet, as we read on in the Bible, we know that Adam failed horribly at his job. In, in verse 3, he, he let the serpent into the garden. And he let sin into the garden. And he disobeyed God's command in the garden. But praise God that he sent a true and better Adam. A true and better king, a true and better priest, his very son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life that Adam and you and I should have lived and died a sacrificial death that you and I deserve to die. So that all of us who turn from our sins and trust in him would be saved. Friends, if you haven't done that this morning, turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ that you might be saved from the wrath to come and saved, given new life in God, being born again, made new as the special people of God and giving a special purpose as God's special people now, as king priests. You see, God still has a temple. Only it's not some physical structure anymore. 
Jesus came and he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it up. And the text tells us that he was talking about his own body. Oh, well, Jesus did that. He rose from the grave and, and, and now he calls us all to trust in him. And all those who trust in Jesus as the true temple become the temple of God. Right? The New Testament says the church is now the temple of God. The church is the place where God dwells with his people by his spirit. And as such, we are to serve and guard the temple as king priests ourselves. How do we do that? Well, first, by rooting out sin in our own lives, by obeying God's commands, by listening to God's word and obeying God's word, by encouraging others to obey God's word and to turn from sin, and by evangelizing and telling others the goodness of God, shattering false assumptions about their own little gods of their minds, telling them that God is good. He lays out so much yes for you, and primarily the yes and amen is found in Christ Jesus, his son. That he wants you to know so that you might have life. The very son who tasted death so that we might have life. We serve and guard the, the temple of God now by knowing the gospel. And only allowing into the membership of the church those who know and have submitted to the gospel. That's how we protect the church's purity. That's how we guard the temple of God. And by practicing church discipline. By putting people out of the church who live in unrepentant sin, who refuse to follow God's commands and yet keep calling themselves God's people, bringing disrepute to God's name and bringing discord in fellowship. No, we are called as king priests in the temple of God, the church, to, to, to keep the church, to keep the temple from impure and harmful things. And so this is all pointing to the future that awaits us that we read about in Revelation, where we will be with the Lord forever. And that's what heaven is. It's, it's not merely freedom from pain and sadness. It's not merely being able to reunite with dear loved ones and friends. Heaven is where we will be with God. And we will be eternally happy with him. That's been God's plan since the Garden of Eden. And friends, God is still on course with his plans. He's coming back to be with his people. His plan is to be with his people in his place in perfect union. And the Lord Jesus is coming back to fulfill that plan. And so God's people say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy to us in Christ. We pray that you would help us to honor you with our lives, to obey your word. Oh, Lord, thank you for welcoming us into your presence. And Lord, we pray that we would continually live under your rule and then guard your presence, Lord, from our own sin and from the collective sin of others. Lord, help us to live as pure people in your presence. And Lord, we await you, your return, where we'll be eternally happy in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.